Well, uh, it is great to be here as always. I tell you, every time I come here, I am so blessed by the worship. And uh, I, this isn't a complaint, but I, 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 um, so many places that I go, I get to sing the same words 18 times rather than getting to sing the whole verse and to have my mind worship God. And I, uh, like I said, it's not a complaint, but I'll tell you, if you ever do study, this isn't what this sermon is about, but it, it, there's a reason that our churches have gone into more of a repetitive um, verse after verse after verse or the same thing. And it has new age roots because of a mantra type thing. And uh, I love to be able to have my mind worship God, not just be something that is a spirit or an emotional kind of thing, that, but it's the mind that is to worship. And that's what our goal is this week and throughout our lives, is that we don't just come to worship God in the body. We don't just come to sit here in the pews, but we come to give God our heart, our bodies, our minds, our soul, every bit of it, our spirit. The Bible even says true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And uh, that is what we're going to be talking about today, is the spirit of truth. The Garden of Eden. I'll tell you, a lot of people don't realize that this Garden of Eden, uh, it's much deeper than what people realize. Sometimes we make it just a Sunday school story about Adam and Eve and creation. And we make it just a VBS story. But it's much deeper and much more than that. And I'm very excited this week to go through and talk about just a little bit of this creation message and show you how deep it really goes. Um, I know I need to kind of check my time here to see I only have 55 minutes, he told me, or it might have been 35, I don't know. But anyway, just trying to make him squirm a little bit. Well, guys... Um, we're going to start in Genesis 2, and if you have your Bibles, I really encourage you to open them up and uh, look here in Genesis 2. We're going to kind of focus on that. I'm going to jump around to a couple of other verses, but I want you to just really look at some of these words in this creation story here in Genesis chapter 2, where we're going to begin. Now, I'm not going to start at the very first verse, but I do want you to understand why you're going there, that everything is going to trace back to the beginning here in Genesis. Everything is scripture. Almost everything that you read, even in the New Testament, is going to take you back to Genesis in one way or another. More than you even realize, guaranteed. Guaranteed. This is such an important foundation. It's even very prophetic. We look at Genesis and creation and what they're going to study this week in VBS as kind of a past history. I'm telling you, it is a picture of the future. And so we can't just look back when we look at creation. We need to look ahead because it is very prophetic. There are some deep spiritual truths in the creation message. You see, Deuteronomy 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. You see, the secret things belong to the Lord. We want to tap into these mysteries this week because they belong to our children as well. And when we start laying a foundation of creation, we are laying much more than history. Let's read what it says here. Now the Lord God had planted 
literally established in the Hebrew, a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see, I want you to understand that when God planted this garden, Eden was already there. We often think of Eden and paradise, but Eden was a portion of God's creation. And within that Eden, God had planted a garden, something special, something unique, something very different. It's interesting, uh, there was a Jewish rabbi named Rashi. Now, I don't hold a lot of weight in everything this man says, don't get me wrong, but it's interesting that a lot of these Jewish rabbis, and I, I'm very much into Jewish history and some of the Hebrew roots of Christianity because in many cases, these people are thousands of years closer to what happened than what we are. And they recorded things in their commentary of Scripture. And uh, I do believe God had given them much wisdom and, and, and that the Spirit was with them. They were God's chosen people. And many times they just didn't get it. When you study the Old Testament and you read what they say about these verses, they were looking for the Messiah and they saw the Messiah in things that you guys just see as stories. But yet clearly was speaking of the Messiah and we'll talk about that. But... It's not scripture, but Rashi, what he does say about Exodus 15, 17, which is scripture, it says this. He says that this is a picture, the Garden of Eden was a picture of the future temple, the future kingdom of God. Now, in Exodus 15, this is a picture or Moses' song. He is singing, you know, the song of deliverance, and he says, you will bring them in, God's people, and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. You see, God planted a garden, but then he's going to plant Adam in that garden. Likewise, God has a future where he is going to plant a paradise, and then he is going to plant his people in that paradise. He says, the place the Lord you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. You see, he saw the Garden of Eden as God's temple, God's throne. And that is exactly, indeed, what it is. So note that he plants the garden, then he plants man in it. Have we ever seen this before? Have we ever seen this? Remember that this is kind of a prophetic picture. Yeah, I've kind of alluded to it already, but you see, this is what Jesus tells us. In John, he says, I go and I prepare a place for you. What kind of place? Well, Eden, a place like Eden, a paradise. That's what Eden is, paradise. Remember what he told the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, this whole Garden of Eden, this whole picture of creation, as much as I love to talk about dinosaurs and when God made them and how he did and on what day and, and, and how, you know, the dinosaurs would fit on the ark and all that, that is not the issue. That's not the most important thing. Those are the things we've made the issues today. 
Those are the things that we've made the issues because I have to prove that to you so that you can believe Genesis. The issue isn't how dinosaurs went on the ark. The issue is how does this creation point to our future? How does it point to Jesus? That's what I'm excited this week to talk about. You see, God is preparing a place and then he brings man in. Just as Jesus went to prepare a place for us. And you know what? We're going to get to go in. But not until we receive a glorified body. You understand that when God planted Adam in this garden of Eden, he was in a glorified state. He didn't put him in there until he was made in the image of God. Psalm 17, verse 15 says this, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. You see, we are being made in God's likeness, aren't we? Adam was made in God's likeness when he was in paradise. Something happened, though, and we're going to talk more about this this week. But you see, when God first made Adam, Adam was the ultimate authority. You see, he was a Christ figure. He was like God in the image of God. What Adam said, it went. Just like when God said, let there be, it was. It says that when it records Adam naming the animals, whatever he named them, that was its name. He had ultimate Powerful authority, dominion. And what happens? Well, he gives that dominion to Satan when he falls. And then Satan gets that dominion. But Christ comes and is taking it back. And he's going to give it back to us again someday. Because we are being made in his likeness. 1 John 3, 2 says... A, it, it basically agrees. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we will all be changed. The immortality becomes, or the mortal becomes immortal. Right? What's perishable becomes imperishable. Right now, I am a saint because of what God has done for me. He has made me new. He has taken away the condemnation of my sin. But you know what? I'm still in a fallible, perishable tent. But there is a day coming, and we are going to be like Adam, and we are going to be placed in a garden a holy place. But we don't get into heaven until we receive that glorified body that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. You know what? I love this part. The Jewish Encyclopedia talks about Adam and what he was like when he was in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Again, not the Scripture. This is the Jewish Encyclopedia. The understanding of what the Jewish rabbis understood of Adam passed on from centuries this is what he, it says of him. He was a, of extreme beauty and sunlike brightness. Hmm. His skin was a bright garment. 
His skin was a garment. Have you ever looked at animals and you thought, why are we the only ones that are not, you know, clothed? You ever notice that? We are the only part of God's creation that's not clothed. There's a reason for that. Because we were clothed the way we were supposed to be. The way we were created to be, we were already clothed. We became naked. Come back to that. It says, his skin was a bright garment, shining like his nails. He, Adam, was like one of the angels. He ate angels' bread. All creation bowed before him in awe. He was the light of the world. Now, wait a minute. I thought God was the light of the world. Remember, Adam is a Christ figure. Adam was like God. Wasn't God, don't get me wrong, but he was like God. In the image of God, glorified like God like we will be. It goes on, but sin deprived him of all glory. The earth and the heavenly bodies lost their brightness, which will come back only in the messianic time. You see, there's a time that this is going to be restored. When we look at Eden, don't look at the past, look into the future. That's what I hope your kids are going to find this week. Not just the past, but the future. This agrees with Psalm 104, verses 1 through 2, what these Jewish rabbis said. It says this in Psalms, the scriptures. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. You see, God is clothed in light. He, he covers himself in light. Do you know that you couldn't look at God, right? They weren't supposed to be able to look at God without dying. But we see that in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was filled with smoke, you know, so that basically to hide the ark and to hide his presence. We see the glory of God. Moses goes up on the mountain, and he comes back. His face is glowing so much that people can't even look at him because the glory was so bright. My point, though, is this, is that God is clothed in glory. Now, God made Adam in his image. So do you suppose that that Jewish commentary is correct? That Adam, too, glowed? And that he wasn't naked? You see, we often picture Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as, ah! Even though, but they just felt no shame. Today, these crazy nudist colonies and, and liberal people say, well, you know, the only reason we wear clothes is because it's just, you know, cultural thing. If we all went naked, we'd all get used to it and we wouldn't even notice, you know, and know anything about it, right? Wrong. That is not how it was in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe that they were naked in the Garden of Eden. Now, before you hang me up and, you know, calling me a heretic, because the Bible says naked, I want to show you something. When we look here in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 2, verse 25, before sin had entered the world, when Adam and Eve are in their glorified state, in the image of God, that word naked is arom in Hebrew. Once they fall, and that glory is taken away, now it becomes another form of that word, erom. Arom can mean to be partly covered. Erom, completely naked. 
You see, I believe that what happened is in their glorified state, yes, they did not have clothes like you and I have, not of cotton and polyester or whatever. Do we still wear polyester? I don't know. Okay, but the bottom line is it wasn't that. They were clothed in glory because they were made in the image of God the way they were supposed to be made without sin. But then when sin came and that light, that glory was removed, then you could see their true nakedness. So you see, we often picture that because this is what we've grown up with all of our lives is that they were just naked and that was okay. No. It wasn't the fact that clothing or not clothing wasn't okay. What's, what's not okay is not being in our glorified state. And this is what we are waiting for to return to. A glorified state. Well, as we move on here in Genesis 2, verse 9, again, just looking back, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, as I read this, I think, why put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why not somewhere over tucked in the corner, you know, where nobody's ever going to go? God intended for this tree to be in a very prominent place. Pretty much the path of anywhere you're going to go, you're going you're to run across this thing. Not somewhere on the borders, but right in the middle of the garden. And it says, not only that, but he made all kinds of trees that were good and pleasing to the eye and good for food. But in the middle, not only does he put the tree of life, but right next to it, right next to it, in the same prominent place, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? Why would he set literally something that is death before Adam and Eve in their glorified state? You ever ask yourself that question? I get it all the time. When people are talking, why did God even do that? Why did he put it in the garden? Wouldn't it have been easier? Well, I'll tell you why. I think scriptures, this isn't unique. Everybody asks why God did it in the Garden of Eden, but they don't ask why he did it all throughout scripture. But he does. This is not unique. You see, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, look what it says. God says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. When Israel is going into the promised land, after they are delivered, by the way, once they are delivered out of Egypt, they have been redeemed through the Passover lamb, what's the first thing that happens? Well, first thing, they are kind of a baptized. They go through the, the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10 says they all passed through the sea. It was a baptism as they went through the Red Sea, right? Then what happens? Into heaven. Woohoo! Right? No. They go and receive the Ten Commandments. They go to Mount Sinai after they have been redeemed. 
Today, we kind of have it a little backwards. We say, okay, you've been redeemed. Now, Sinai is in our past. It's not that way. Why did God put Sinai in front of them before they went into the promised land? For the same reason that Adam and Eve were already glorified, but he puts in front of them a tree of knowledge of good and evil. We often also see here in Jeremiah 21, 8, Now you shall see or say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, the way of death. I could give you a number of verses that are going to talk about this. Let's look here at Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, a little more. It says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. Blessings and curses. Now, choose life. Why? It says that you and your children may live. That you may have life abundantly. You see, God put these, this, these two trees together in a prominent place for you to have a choice. For you to have free will. He does the same thing with the Israelites. And he even says, I am doing this to test you, to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You see, guys, when God redeemed them, he baptized them, he takes them to the Mount Sinai, and he says, okay, I've redeemed you, I love you, you say you love me, let's see. Let me see what you will choose now. Now that I have shown you my love, what will you choose? Thou shalt or thou shalt not. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them everything and he says, okay, now I set before you. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. You say you love me. Show me. Do you know it's no different for us today? The condemnation of the law has been completely removed from me. Okay? Those ten commandments, I am not under the condemnation of them anymore because of what Jesus has done. But they still are there. The law is good as long as one uses it properly, it says in Romans, right? The law is good. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I say. Right? And we could look at many other verses that talk about that. As a Christian, God has set his commandments before us not so that we can be good enough to get into heaven, but he has done it for us to have a choice. I choose to not steal today. Why? Because I love God. I choose to honor the Sabbath today. Why? Because I love God. I choose to not murder today, not because I'm afraid to go into prison, but because I love God. We have a tree of life and a tree of knowledge and evil in a sense set before us each and every day as we choose to love God. You see, God wanted us to have a choice. You know why? Because God is an emotional God. He's not a robot, but I think that's what we make him sometimes. He is just this robotic God that's up in heaven and we just, it's like a computer. He's not. He is a personal, relational, 
emotional, jealous God who wants your heart. You see, he put that in a prominent place because he wanted you to choose. Let me ask you, you women out there especially, because you're very emotional. Compared to men, you're very emotional, right? How many of you would, well, basically want to be loved because you had to be? You want to be chosen, right? You don't even want to be somebody's second choice, do you? You want to be their first choice. This is what God is. He loves us. He is an emotional God, and he wants us to choose him. Adultery is such a terrible thing. I'm sure many of you have been in that situation here, but, and you probably know people or have experienced it yourself, it, that when a spouse is unfaithful, it is one of the most deep-cutting things that a person could go through. Okay, I, I've seen people who are just devastated and destroyed because their spouse has been unfaithful to them. That shows you the depth of what a relationship and love is. And when God talks about us being unfaithful, this is how he speaks about it. It is unfaithfulness. It is adultery. And that is how much it hurts God when we are unfaithful. If you've ever seen a person who has gone through that kind of unfaithfulness, it, it, it just it hurts your heart to see how much it hurts their heart. And this is the depth. This is the kind of love God has for us. When we put it into that perspective, it just shows us God is emotional. God loves us so much, and it hurts him deeply when people go away from him. You know, people always accuse him of being this God of hate and, you know, this evil God. Putting this tree of knowledge in there. We've got all this hurt and harm that goes on today. And they accuse him of the very opposite thing that he is. He is love. Well, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. Well, he has to. Because that's what just is, right? Justice. I've talked about that before here. I'm not going to get into it today. But God desires our love, not a robotic commitment. You see, we often look at the full gospel, and in a sense, theologically, we could say, yes, the full gospel is Jesus loved us. But in a sense, that's not the full gospel. It's not just him loving us, but it's us reciprocating that love. That's the full gospel. That's what he wants. He wants our love. Our commitment. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand. We can't. We're all fallible, right? We fail all the time. I don't love God as I should all the time, guaranteed. But that's where I'm, thank you, Jesus. There's no condemnation anymore. But it doesn't change the fact what God desires is our love. For us to choose this day whom we will follow. You see... 
Jesus even says in the New Testament, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God is asking for a love that is second to none. You know, if it's not good enough for us, why would it be good enough for him to be second, somebody's second choice? I want to show you something else here, the book of Enoch. Now, you probably don't know a lot about the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not, not a canonized book of Scripture. Okay? I will say this, though. It was found in the Qumran caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls that the people at the time of Jesus considered it to be a very important book. Okay? Even though it was not what we would even call canonized. They considered it very important. Not only was it found with the, the, the rest of the scriptures in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it was found in other languages with the Dead Sea Scrolls. We do know that there was a book of Enoch that was God's word because it is quoted in scripture. In Jude, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones and so on, right? Enoch prophesied. So we know, but the book of Enoch that we have, we don't believe, is the original book of Enoch. We call it pseudepigraphical. So I am not saying this is scripture before I show you this. I want you to understand that. But I do believe that it's good history. I think that we can glean a lot of that out of it. Now, I also believe this, that if it disagrees with scripture, I will discount it. But if it agrees with scripture, there might be something to it then, right? So let me just show you what the book of Enoch says about this Garden of Eden and this paradise, okay? It says, it talks about this tree of life, and it says this, From thence I went to another place of the earth, and he showed me a mountain range of fire which burnt day and night, and I went beyond it and saw seven magnificent mountains, all differing each from the other, and the stones thereof were magnificent and beautiful. Magnificent as a whole of glorious appearance and fair exterior, three towards the east, one founded on the other, three towards the south, one upon the other, and deep sought ravines, no one of which joined with any other. Now, what's that all mean? <laughs> kind of is a little different than what we're used to reading. Bottom line is this. He has to go through fire. But on the other side of this fire, we see these seven mountains. Three and three. But then there are going to be one main one kind of in the center of it, like that almost. Okay? As he goes on. Now, <laughs> this is going to be a little apocalyptic, you might say. But it says in verse 3 of Enoch here, the seventh mountain was in the midst of these, and it excelled from them in height, resembling the seat of a throne. So the seventh one is kind of like a throne. Fragrant trees encircled the throne. Among them was a tree such as I had never yet smelt. Neither was there any among them, nor were others like it. It had a fragrance beyond all fragrance. Its leaves and blooms and wood wither not forever. So just as the scripture verse you said here today, the leaves don't wither. It's eternal. 
It has this smell that is so attractive. It's like none other. It is unique. It is one of a kind. He's talking of the tree of life here. The fruit is beautiful. The fruit resembles the dates of a palm. Then I said, how beautiful is the tree and fragrant, and its leaves are fair, and its blooms very delightful in appearance. So it's beautiful, second to none. And it goes on, and then answered Michael, the angel, on of the holy and honored angels who was with me and was their leader, one of it should say, he said unto me, Enoch, why do you ask me regarding the fragrance of the tree? Why do you wish to learn the truth? So Enoch wants to know about this tree of life. And he says, why do you want to know about its smell? Why do you want to know the truth? The truth. Then I answered him saying, I wish to know about everything, but especially about this tree. And he answered saying, this high mountain which thou hast seen, whose summit is like the throne of God, is his throne. Remember what Rashi said? skip this here. Do you remember what Rashi said? The Garden of Eden was his throne. Do you remember what Genesis says in regards to this? And from the center of the garden comes this river, right? Does that ring a bell to anything maybe in Revelation as well? Yeah, we'll, we'll look at that later, but from the center of the throne comes a river. And it goes on and he says, where the Holy Great One, the Lord of Glory, the Eternal King will sit when he shall come down to visit the earth with, with goodness. In other words, when the Messiah comes back, this is where he's going to sit, on his throne. It goes on. And as for this fragrant tree, no mortal is permitted to touch it till the great judgment, when he shall take vengeance on all and ring every, bring everything to its consummation forever. It shall then be given to the righteous and holy. So notice, you cannot touch it until you are glorified. And when that happens, it says it will be given only to the righteous. Its fruit shall be for food to the elect. It shall be transplanted to the holy place, to the temple of the Lord, the eternal king. Um, Ezekiel says this very thing. Ezekiel talks about the tree of life in Revelation, when it's supposed to come in Revelation, and it says its fruit will be for food and its leaves for healing. Same exact message. This is lining up with Scripture. It says, Then shall they rejoice with joy and be glad, and unto the holy shall they enter, and its fragrance shall be in their bones and they shall long or live a long life on earth. I've got that Ezekiel verse there for you underneath. But notice that its fragrance shall be in their bones. Whose bones? The righteous, the glorified. You are going to have the fragrance of the tree of life in you. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? Well... It continues here in Enoch. We'll come, we're going to make more sense of this in a moment. We see that the tree is only here for the holy, as I said. It cannot be touched 
unless you are glorified, and it can only be touched after Judgment Day. In Revelation, we see John talks about this very exact thing, this tree of life. And where is it? As I said before, it's at the throne. Where is the throne? In the middle. Revelation 22, it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, by the way, Solomon is also a Christ figure. I have a whole sermon just on Solomon. And what's amazing about it is, do you know that even one, one of the aspects, Solomon is anointed king twice, just as Jesus comes twice. Okay? We also see Solomon has 12 people that they bring every month that they're supposed to... Um, basically bring food every month and, and bring supplies for the king every month. And yet this tree of life does the same kind of thing. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. What I want to do is just give you a quick recap here, and then we're going to show you some other scripture verses. Again, no one touches the tree till judgment. The tree is good for food, and it's only for the righteous. It's in the middle, a very prominent place. It bears fruit every month for healing. It's eternal and beautiful beyond compare. It resides in the presence of God, okay, his throne room, basically. It gives off a very strong fragrance, and when transplanted, tran transplanted to the holy place, people, it says, will be glad and joy-filled because of it. The fragrance is to be in their bones. Look what the scriptures say about us because of Jesus glorifying us in part right now. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. The fragrance of his knowledge, the fragrance of truth. We are a fragrance. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 2 also, here in verse 15, says this, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? I'll tell you something. When a Jew would be reading this, because they knew Enoch and because they knew their traditions of the tree of life and the fragrance, don't kid yourself. Their mind was going back to this. Back to Genesis. When it talks about you being the fragrance of Christ, they would have thought about the tree of life, truth, for the righteous. Guys, for some, you are the smell of death. To the ungodly, that's what you are. And by the way, I won't, well, I'm not going to get into it. I don't have time. But to others, you are the fragrance of Christ. Ezekiel, I love Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 43 or 44. He says this, you know, the temple of God, which is kind of what we're talking about with the Garden of Eden, pre-temple, it's the garden. The temple, it says this to the Israelites. He says, show them the temple that they may be ashamed of their sins. Wait a minute, what was the temple for? I thought it was just to make sacrifices. No, show them the temple so that they may be ashamed of their sins. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, reveal to them its design. 
You see, the temple of God, part of its goal, part of its purpose was to make them ashamed of their sins, that they would see God's holiness and they would see them and they go, oh, we are unholy. That is why you are the fragrance of death to people. You are the temple of God today. We have the Garden of Eden. You got the, you know, tent, and then you got the tabernacle of Solomon, and now you got you. And someday it'll be what Jesus went to prepare. But right now, you are the most holy place of God. You are where the Spirit dwells. You are that fragrance of Christ. But some, it is a fragrance of death. Why? Because it will make people ashamed of their sins. People are going to look at you, and they're going to go, what makes you so holy? Right? People hate Christians sometimes because it makes them feel bad, because it convicts them of their sin. It shows them their shortcomings. We could talk about how that can be abused, but anyway, I need to finish up here. We see, I believe that this tree of life in the Garden of Eden, it's Jesus. I truly believe it's Jesus. Okay, the, the Jews saw it as a messianic picture. What is the name of the tree of life? The tree of life. What is Jesus called? I am the way, the truth, and the life. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Same thing in John 10.10. Jesus is called the life. We see that the tree of life, and Michael said it was truth, right? That it is a tree of truth. What is Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word of God. He is a lamp unto our feet. He is the way, he is the truth. We see that the tree brings healing. What did Jesus come and do? He says that he came and he healed all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases among the people. We see that the tree of life, it's the word that gives life. As I said, Jesus is that word. Do you know that in a Jewish synagogue they have these um, Torah scrolls? The handles of the scroll, okay, those handles are literally called the tree of life in any synagogue today. They see the word of God being connected to that tree of life. Jesus is the word of God. We see that it is one of a kind. Jesus is one of a kind. There is only one way to heaven. Not two, but one way. The only begotten Son. Remember that this tree was described as unique, like none other, fragrance, like none other, second to none. Jesus is the only begotten Son. That word begotten literally is unique. And we could go into a lot more on that, but bottom line is, one of a kind. Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What we receive is Jesus. Jesus is that prize. To him who overcomes, we receive Jesus, the word of God. Jesus said this, You think that by searching the scriptures you have eternal life? But he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. 
I want you guys to remember that as your kids go through VBS this week, as you come this week, as you study the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament, I want you to understand something. We're not studying the past. Jesus himself said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. It's about Jesus. That's what creation is all about. That's why he is the creator. All things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. So look for Jesus this week as we go through creation. And in closing here, Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasures. You see, you cannot understand Revelation, you can't understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John without going to the beginning. You will understand the end from the beginning. So this creation is much more about science and answers about dinosaurs. This is prophetic. This is a prophetic VBS this week, pointing us to Jesus, not just the Jesus that hung on the cross, but the Jesus that is coming back to take us into a glorified state, into that paradise, to give us that glory that is complete and new. I hope you guys can join me this week because this is just the beginning. You are going to be blown away by some of the things that you're going to see how Adam is a Christ figure. And uh, we, we will give you some science answers maybe too as well. But um, I hope that this is a good foundation to get your mindset in the right area as we start this week in VBS. So let's give thanks to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And I just thank you for, for being a God who is so amazing and so deep and wonderful, a God who has glorified us through your Son, Jesus Christ, but yet only in part, that there is more to come, and we look forward to that. And in the meantime, Father, we just ask that we would love you as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.